0: You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating, Episode 17 with Elise Rush. Now, I could stop the introduction right here because her name speaks for itself. Elise is the intuitive eating person. She and Evelyn Tribly wrote the book, or the books, now it's at its fourth edition the workbook, the card deck, the teen workbook, the journal, you name it, that's her. And so when we say intuitive eating, it's become part of a vocabulary. We talk about it all the time. Just know that's Elise. So needless to say, she's published like millions of journal articles and print articles and blog posts and does regular speaking engagements and podcasts and extensive media interviews. And I can go on and on and on and on and on. Okay. Maybe millions was an exaggeration but she is the OG. So just a bit about her. She is a certified eating disorder, registered dietitian and supervisor, a fellow of the international association of eating disorder professionals and a fellow of the Academy of nutrition and dietetics. I'm so excited for this conversation. Let's just jump right in. Well, Elise, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your taking the time. This is a wonderful opportunity for me and for my listeners. You are the
1: intuitive eating person. I mean, you and Evelyn. So thank you. Any chance I get to talk about intuitive eating and help people, you know, the brainwashing that diet culture has done to them and find a way of living that gives them so much joy and satisfaction in eating and where they feel the freedom that uh, comes with listening to their own bodies. So I'm thrilled. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah.
0: So I'm curious, you know, taking us back to in the nineties or even before you were trained as a registered dietitian, you were, you know, you went through school, your practice was all nutrition science based or whatever we knew at the time. And there was obviously no intuitive eating. You made it up or you coined the term. So what kind of brought you to this idea that maybe what I'm doing
1: is not actually right? I think it starts back in graduate school, which was actually in the 70s. Oh, wow. (laughs) Late 70s. It'll be 40 years next year that I've been a registered dietitian nutritionist. Amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. So I, I used to fight with my teachers. I love it.
0: Oh, my type of person. <laughs> you
1: know, one assignment from this, it was a nutrition therapy class, which I don't think is the same as nutrition therapy the way I could see it today. I don't remember the topic, but what she taught us was all wrong as far as I was concerned. And I thought, well, what do I want to do? I don't want to fail the class. So I wrote two papers. I wrote one paper that followed the guidelines that she had taught. And then the other one that I thought followed the truth. So I'm pretty much been a Maverick for a long time.
0: Wait, Elise, which one did you hand in?
1: I handed them both in. Oh, did you? What'd you get? Yes, I handed them both <laughs> It was like, look, this is what you taught us, but I don't agree with you. So this is what I have found that that I think is the real truth. She didn't know what to do with me. She was scared of me a little bit,
0: as <laughs> <laughs> she should have been. So there's always an inkling that there was something off with with diet culture or nutrition science as it was
1: always. And I think though that I didn't have another framework to be able to really define what I felt was the truth. All I knew was my own experiences with clients. It started out actually, I did my training at a facility affiliated with Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, working with developmentally disabled kids. And it was a wonderful program because it was multi multidisciplinary and I learned from every other health discipline there. So that was great, including psychology, psychiatry, social work, which really informs the psychology, informs all of my work. And I thought I was going to work with kids with developmental disabilities. That was going to be my career. It didn't happen that way. Not even remotely that way. <laughs> no, I didn't get the referrals for that. Instead, I got referrals from doctors. For me to help people lose weight, and it was always framed in their cholesterol's high, their blood sugar's high, their blood pressure's high. It just didn't feel right to me, and I think without actually cognitively, you know, investigating it, I had had my own eating disorder and was healed from that and just did not want to be in that world of diets because I had, in my eating disorder, I did every diet that was available and rebounded with all the binging that I could possibly do. So I knew intuitively that this doesn't work. I didn't know what to do with it because here were these the medical community who thought the answer to everything was lose weight. And I tried to focus with clients on what they could give themselves rather than what they would take away if it was high cholesterol, how can we add some beans and oatmeal or something versus what you shouldn't eat. So I think I had the inklings inside of the idea that all foods have to be, the term I use now is emotionally equivalent, that you don't feel good about yourself because you ate some vegetables and bad about yourself because you had some desserts. But I couldn't have really articulated it the way I can today. It just, it was more of an intuitive sense. And as time went on and I felt more and more uncomfortable, I had one defining moment where I had a young woman who was my client and i had given her her meal plan which is what i had been taught in graduate school i didn't call it a diet i called it a meal plan i said it could be flexible but not really you know follow this and all will be all will be well and she came in and she said i can't follow it i'm binging and i thought i don't know what to say to her i didn't have the tools it was right around that time that I started reading some of the non-diet literature that was coming out. There was a particular book called Overcoming Overeating by Jane Hirschman and Carol Munter, a long time ago. And its focus was psychological. If you deprive people of things, that's what they want. And so there were guidelines for, and neither of them was a, a nutritionist or a dietitian. Jane a psychologist. And Carol, I don't, never been able to find out what her field is, but in any case, it just basically said, eat whatever you want. And that's a piece of intuitive eating, but there's so much more to it than that. But it started to open my mind to looking at the psychology. And at that point, I had been in therapy for a while and I had healed my own eating disorder, not that my therapist knew anything about eating disorders. It was just the cycle, you know, emotional healing and the fact that I was learning all the science when I was in graduate school. Mm
0: So wait, how did you do that? Meaning like there was no eating disorder treatment center to help you recover. And so what did that process look like for you?
1: Well, nothing, nothing. In fact, in graduate school, and by the way, I didn't go back to graduate school until I was thirty. I was an elementary school teacher straight out of college, and oh wow! So I think it was the science that I learned in the the actual pure science that I learned about how the body works, how what we need to nourish ourselves, mm-hmm. combined with looking at emotional issues that I'd never dealt with in my life and making some major changes in my life at that point that I just started healing. And I ended up with a new group of friends and people who were more like-minded to me. And and I, it just, it evolved. But in graduate school, as I was start to, starting to say, there was one course on adolescent nutrition, and there was one day that they mentioned anorexia. That was it. Really? We saw a couple of... Was, yeah. of uh, you know, Skeletal looking young women. And that was it. There was nothing around. I didn't know the term eating disorders. I, I didn't know any of that when I was in graduate school. However, afterwards, when I was working at this um, program with Children's Hospital and had finished my traineeship and I had asked to continue to work there, I was running their feeding clinic. The supervisor I had had knew I was interested in eating disorders because she knew me, I guess. And she knew that I was... <laughs> It was something you know personal about it to me. And she invited me to come with her. This is when the early days of treatment started happening to the UCLA Adolescent Eating Disorder Clinic. Team meetings. And I went just, you know, no credit. No, I wasn't working there, but she just allowed me to come with her for two years every Friday morning to their team meetings. And I learned so much there. So that's backing up into learning more about eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And then I was hired very soon after that as the nutritionist on an eating disorder unit in Beverly Hills, which no longer exists. The whole hospital doesn't exist. So I kind of learned through those meetings and on the job about eating disorders, which then, of course, was the framework for why diets don't work and why you know the psychology behind everything so it just kind of happened but i would say that letting go of the orthorexia i had had that led me to my eating disorder was phenomenal in terms of healing for me there were no longer any good foods bad foods it was whatever i wanted to eat and so, reading some of that that non diet material that was out there, I know that Janine Roth wrote some lay you know books about it all, and they all really pointed to the concept of deprivation, mm-hmm. which is a huge piece of um, why diets don't work. There's way more to it than that, and that's something that's kind of my baby, which I'll talk about in a bit. Yes. So little by little, I thought, I've got to write a book about this. And I sat down at my computer and put some chapter headings. And I think I've been thinking about this lately. I think I started to think of it as the Tao of eating, T-A-O, Taoism. Taoism is an ancient Chinese philosophy that basically says, don't try to control. It basically says, let things happen the way they're supposed to happen. This is a sidebar. I learned about it. My son at the time was 15 and he was in boarding school and he called me one day and he said, Mom, I just read this book and you've got to read it. And it was called The Tao of Pooh. And it explained Taoism through Winnie the Pooh. Interesting. And it's a great book. Still around. I recommend it. And it really got me thinking about how control backfires and how being, you know, more of listening to your inner voice is the way to go with eating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's many things. It's not one moment in time that led to it. It was an evolution of this doesn't work. This doesn't feel good to me. That teacher didn't know what she was talking about and moving toward what felt right to me. And so I wrote these chapter headings on the computer. And at the time, my co-author, Evelyn, she still does lives an hour away from me. And she was coming up to LA once a week to see a couple of clients and sharing some space in my office. And one day I saw her, and she looked unhappy about something. And I said, "Evelyn, what you know? What's the problem?" And she said, "I'm very frustrated. I'm writing this book with a psychologist, and she doesn't know how to write." I knew I had good writing skill skills. In fact, when my son was a baby, I was taking classes, no credit, uh, women's literature classes, and writing papers on Virginia Woolf and things for no credit.
0: You did a lot of things with no credit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> But, but you know they all lead to where you are exactly in see the present time. So I knew I was a good writer and I knew I had my ideas. And if it was a psychologist that wasn't participating the way she wanted or what she had thought about, I just jumped in. It was one of those moments, talk about Virginia Woolf, moments of being where you know it's like a light bulb goes off. And I just said, mm-hmm. I'll do it with you. And so we started to collaborate and she had some similar ideas and it took us a couple of years. I think we started writing probably in 93 and the book was published in 95 and We got really lucky. We had three different publishers that were interested. You and I were talking before we started about the publishing world and we got three different offers with you know some advances and we picked St. Martin's Press and we stuck with them on that, on the intuitive eating book. There's other books that have gone through new Harbinger publications who have been wonderful as well. So
0: did I answer your question? Oh
1: yes. And more.
0: I have many more to follow up, but I guess maybe just to start with, you've alluded to, and we are definitely living in a world where people use the term intuitive eating as a catchphrase and people have incorporated it into diets, which is exactly exactly the opposite of what it is. So even just coming like from you, what is your understanding of intuitive eating? The definition.
1: Right. The definition. Well, the standard definition is it's a compassionate self-care framework, you know, that is guided by these 10 principles, which aren't rules They're you know, they're kind of guidelines. I have a better definition that I love, which is one that I actually developed after a very terrible experience at a conference where Someone was speaking on intuitive eating and this person was not at all connected with Evelyn and me. He uh hold on a second, you were attending
0: something, someone was talking about your topic.
1: Yes, in fact, when I saw it in the brochure months before, I wrote to this guy and I said, Oh, I see that you're going to give a talk on intuitive eating. I'm one of the co-authors. I'm so interested. And he said, Oh, yeah, it's gonna be this great talk. And I said, Well, I'll be at the conference. Oh, come, you'll just, you know, really enjoy it. Well, that was a little gaslighting. So the night before the conference. We had flash drives to look at the slides and I looked at the slides and I went, oh, my God, this guy is going to be bashing into intuitive eating. Really? So I got up the next morning. This was late at night. The night before got up the next morning, went to this talk. It was standing room only because so many people were interested in intuitive eating. I think it was an IADEP conference, International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. Oh, how ironic. Yeah, and so his first slide was a picture of, it was the second edition at that point of the book. This was quite a while ago. And you know, Evelyn and me, pictures of us, and he introduced me to the audience and said, this is one of the esteemed authors of intuitive eating. And then he said, I looked up the definition of intuition, and it says instinct. And we all know you can't just eat by instinct alone. So intuitive eating really can't work. Oh my God. I have to tell you, it was the most humiliating and upsetting and frustrating situation. I didn't just get up and walk out of the room. I sat there and listened to the whole thing. And at the end, I just walked right by him. I was so angry. And my friends and colleagues came up to me, Elise, are you okay? Well, I didn't intend to go through the story, but I will because it's interesting. So I immediately called Evelyn. I'm up. really impressed that you didn't punch him, though. Yeah. I might to throw me out, so I don't think that would have been productive. But I was not happy. So I called up Evelyn. I said, this is trouble. And I told her what happened. And ironically, she was going to be on a panel with this guy the following week and was really happy I'd given her the heads up on it. And I, and so, but what came out of it, and my philosophy in life is there's always learning. So, you know, even in the most difficult times, there's learning. And I thought, okay, I see what's going on here. People don't really understand what intuitive eating is. We need a better definition. And at that point, I was reading uh, Peter Levine's book, Awakening the T- that may not be the correct name of it. It was so long ago. But in any case, he's a wonderful somatic experiencing therapist. And he started talking about the development of the brain and the triune brain, the three parts of the brain. One part is the reptilian brain, which was at the time of the dinosaurs, where it was fully instinct. Mm-hmm. OK, that is part of our, you know, of our brain is instinct. And they apparently didn't have thoughts, feelings just went after it to stay alive. It's survival. And then with the mammals came the mammalian brain, which is the seat of emotions and social behaviors, which cats and dogs, they have feelings. They get pissed at you if you leave them and go out of town. And eventually what differentiates us as humans is the neocortex of the human brain. But I will say that what was just brought up to me in uh, two weeks ago by someone I have supervised is that apparently there's some controversy about whether this is truly an evolutionary process, whether all those three parts of the brain may have been in animals from the beginning, but they just weren't activated yet. So it doesn't really matter when they came about, they exist in us as humans. And so intuitive eating, here's your definition, intuitive eating is a dynamic interplay Of instinct, emotion, and thought. So, this guy who said we can't eat by instinct alone was completely correct, but that's not what intuitive eating is. That's very reductionist. Yes, we have instincts, our instincts to survive, our hunger, our fullness, what we, you know, what tastes good to us. But emotions come in often to interfere with our instincts and cause us to be afraid of eating if there's a serious eating disorder, or perhaps be so stressed out that we can't eat or so stressed out that we want to eat more. So we have to address the emotions and use the cognitive part, the rational parts of our mind to calm our emotions, to make good decisions for ourselves. Interestingly, now in the time of COVID, I have had a number of clients who have either mm. lost their taste and smell from having had COVID, or a couple of them who have healed mostly from the, their experience with COVID. They have some strange taste things that come up with different foods. It's not like they just, uh, one of my clients said that tasting meat makes her nauseous now. And she always loved to meet. There's some strangeness to it. Yeah. Another client said she can't eat anything with garlic or onions in it anymore. They just taste horrible to her. So I've worked with clients who don't have that Mm -hmm. instinct to, you know, no appetite, don't want to eat. However, they have to find a way to think it through and make sure that they nourish themselves. Also, like people on ADHD medication, for example, which can take away an appetite, still need Mm -hmm. to eat and find a way to get enough food in in a day to nourish oneself. So that's where the cognitive part of the mind as humans is making decisions for ourselves, but we are also intuitively driven to survive and and really kind of zoom into those intuitive signals that each of us has. And everyone's different, has different ones. So the definition, my favorite, is the dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and thought, which is mind-body. Absolutely.
0: And what it sounds like most people are missing in the intuitive eating idea is that they're being like this guy and they're saying it's instinct only, or it's just hungerfulness. And they're really narrowing it down to one idea out of so many.
1: All right, and one of the things that has always troubled me is that in the eating disorder community, and I am a CEDRDS certified eating disorder RD and supervisor, soon
0: to be CEDSS. You meaning, meaning we're getting rid of the RD after 2023.
1: Oh I thought I that. Okay. So we'll all be CEDS. Okay. Exactly. Uh, especially, you know, a specialist in eating disorders. I like that much better because I rarely call myself a dietitian anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think of myself more as a you know a nutrition therapist in any case. And not that I talk about nutrition that much, but in any case. So one of the things that troubles me is that in some of the eating disorder world, the belief is you can't quote unquote use intuitive eating when you're treating someone with an eating disorder. And that is so wrong Is it important to help people who have been have not been nourishing themselves to understand that they can't trust their hunger signals that they're going to be fuller most of the time because of slowed stomach emptying? So you know if you have anorexia nervosa and you tell me I'm only eating when I'm hungry you know come on <laughs> yeah <laughs> but there's 10 principles there's so many other things to be working with with intuitive eating you know especially in terms of challenging diet culture And I'm sure we'll probably talk about some of the other principles. So the idea that it's thought of as the hunger fullness diet is throughout the eating disorder world, and it's out there, not even you know, not even in that world. And people who have been dieters and go, yeah, I just have to get the perfect place to start eating the perfect, you know, they turn it into a diet. Mm -hmm. And if they don't eat it, exactly uh, whatever, 3.75 or whatever on on the hunger fullness scale, which is really just a guideline. It is not any kind of a rule in any way. They start to feel bad about themselves just the way they felt bad when they couldn't follow diet rules. Or if they one day eat a lot more than what their comfortable fullness on the scale says, then they beat themselves up for that. And intuitive eating is so nuanced. It is absolutely not the hunger fullness but this leads me to something that Evelyn and I are so upset about now, how intuitive eating is being co-opted. This thing called Noom, I don't want to, I, I
0: don't want to get... Oh, I was just going to say
1: that Noom has been using intuitive eating. Oh my goodness. In fact, Evelyn just sent me a text yesterday about how when you, I think Google intuitive eating workbook, Noom comes up. Yeah. Apparently a lot of money's been spent to get Noom to come up when you put in anything intuitive eating and we don't know what to do with that we just don't have the power behind us to fight such a big corporation who has so much power, so much money so much influence we just have to help people understand that <laughs> noom is a diet it has nothing to do with intuitive eating
0: but also just goes to show how diet culture is this multi-billion dollar industry and they have enough money to make you think whatever they want you to
1: think exactly so we're up against a lot but we're making we're making headway and going back for a moment to eating disorders i know you're interested in some of the studies that are in the book mm-hmm. There was one study in 2017 that looked at
0: whether you- well as an aside the reason why I'm interested in it is because people say this all the time. Oh, it's backed by science, backed by science. I mean, you can say anything's backed by science. I studied my five friends what's real
1: research and this is real research right now there's 150 studies at least 150 studies really you know peer-reviewed evidence-based scientific studies that look at the benefit of intuitive eating
0: maybe i'll ask you to send me some and i can link them in the show notes if anyone's interested well
1: they're pretty much what the one i was going to talk about is in the uh, first chapter of the fourth edition of intuitive eating so yeah, exactly, by the way. The thing that I always wondered about in the early studies, and the studies have been going on for a long time now, is... Okay, when you look at people who have never been dieters that are intuitive eaters from birth, here are all the characteristics they have, here are all the benefits they have from being intuitive eaters. But I thought to myself, but can we teach people to be intuitive eaters? So this one particular study that, you know, that I really like. This is the one that's by it was a 2017 study by Richards et al. They uh, it was a 2-year pilot study and they were teaching intuitive eating in a residential program for eating disorders. And found through the study that yes, Mm -hmm. as people were healing from their eating disorders, they could become intuitive eaters. These were people so disconnected from intuitive eating, and I love that. And there's others too, but that that show that no, it's not just something that only people who've always been intuitive eaters and have never dieted have this connection with their internal wisdom. We can learn to get reconnected. And certainly, I'm a good example from having been someone in my late 20s that you know was orthorexic, dieting, restricting, and binging, and I haven't had a problem with eating in gosh 40 years, over 40 years. So, so this part. I love this this idea that studies can actually look into, can we use intuitive eating in the treatment of eating disorders? And there are a number of places. In fact, I have just partnered with a new program called Within Health, which is phenomenal, founded by Wendy Oliver Pyatt, who Mm -hmm. has founded several residential and non-residential eating disorder treatment programs based on intuitive eating. She's a huge proponent of intuitive eating. And so. Okay. Another time. Yeah. Oh, it's so great. This is a wonderful program. We're, that's not what we're going to talk about today, but I'm thrilled with it. It just launched uh, publicly a couple of weeks ago. Congratulations. I'm very excited about that. On their advisory board. I'm not, I'm not a dietitian on the program, but a nutritionist, but I just think they're so great. And intuitive eating is the there because they believe as do other, so they're not the only treatment programs mm-hmm. believe that teaching intuitive eating to patients, even while they're healing from their eating disorder will allow them to have the best results. In fact, Raquel, I have seen so many people come to me from other programs that don't utilize intuitive eating, where they're fully healed physically, they have no symptoms, no more behaviors, but their heads are full of eating disorder thoughts that they haven't let go of, they're afraid to let go of their meal plan, they're dependent on that, they're not trusting themselves, and I've had to do a lot of Unlearning for them and new learning in terms of motivating. So,
0: yeah, I'm nodding away. So, so many similar experiences, in that, on the outside, it looks like they're fine, but internally, it's all disordered.
1: Well, right, because they're taught to measure and weigh and count exchanges and things that really perpetuate that obsessive thinking and good and bad feelings. Well, if I don't get exactly the right amount of this, what's wrong with me? As far as I'm concerned, if you want to eat carbs all day long or you want to eat protein all day long or eventually after a couple of days, everything's going to even out. You don't have to be on a particular, uh, as long as you eat enough, you don't have to be on any Mm -hmm. specified, you know right Yeah. amount. So that leads me to a question I've
0: gotten a ton. I'm sure you've gotten this umpteen times about the person who says, well, I just can't do intuitive eating because when I see cake, I'm never going to stop. And so my body is just different. What would you say to that person? Well, I have a lot of things
1: to say. And in fact, one of my dearest... (laughs) I have a lot of things. (laughs) Usually, one of my dearest friends and a lot of my friends are still dieting after all these years and are not taking... Oh, that's such a big slap in the face. (laughs) I I try not to take it personally. I know it's their own thing, but she has said to me many times, oh, if you let me eat whatever I want, I'm going to eat steak every night. So here's the thing she and anyone else has never really practiced the freedom to eat whatever you want every day, and has never seen the experience which is called habituation. Habituation is very psychological, it's the greater the stimulus, the less the response, meaning the more you have of something, the less exciting it is. The, the, when it's not forbidden, it's not as exciting. When you have, you know, plenty opportunities to have this particular food in this regard or anything else in life, it loses its mm-hmm. power. Person who says, oh no, I could never do that. All I would eat is cake or whatever. Try it one for a while. Try it. To put, best under the auspices of Certified mm-hmm. Intuitive Eating Counselor because... You have to have someone who can guide you some or at least read the book and buy the book. (laughs) Buy the book and the others. But truly, if you have cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner how many days is it going to be before you crave a salad or a piece of chicken or, you know, or something else? Because that as long as you are fully free to eat, whatever you want to eat, as long as you're not pseudo, you know, like, okay, I'll try this intuitive eating thing. I'll try this cake thing for a few days. I'll show them it doesn't work because in the mind of that person, it's, well, when this thing is all over, I'll go right back to my next diet. Well, that's not real freedom and that's not real making peace with food. That is a little experiment they're doing that sets up future deprivation. And one thing I like to say often is that even the mere perception of future deprivation can lead to binging.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Also, to a certain extent, I don't know if they're doing it entirely because if, say, they're saying, sure, I'll have dessert tonight and and tomorrow and the next day, Chances are they're saying, I can't have two pieces of dessert. I can only have one. And that's not true freedom either.
1: Right. Really good point. It's not just what you're having, but as much of it as you want to really appreciate and get the satisfaction, which... Of all the intuitive eating principles beyond, of course, the number one reject diet mentality, which is essential, satisfaction is the key to intuitivating. eating. It is, you know, looking at, are you truly satisfied with that one piece? Are you truly satisfied by only having it three nights a week? Are you, you know, let's look at satisfaction. How do you feel when you're not hungry? Is that a satisfying experience if you eat then? Or how do you feel when you're ravenous in primal hunger? Not going to be a set. Experience either. So I could go on about satisfaction for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> as you can tell, all these things I could go on for a long time. But I do have another question, and I'm sure you get
0: this question a lot as well. The idea of, and let's just say we're talking about um, ice cream or cake or, you know, those sorts of foods, this sort of argument that people say, well, What about processed foods? Processed foods completely mess with our minds. They take away our innate intuition, white sugar, white flour, all this crap that's in food. And and how can you possibly eat intuitively if the food companies have altered the state of our minds through food?
1: Well, let's look at two populations there. Let's say people are living in a food desert. Let's say they have food insecurity, and the best they can do is get processed food or fast food in order to feed their families because they don't have the money, the time, the energy to you know to cook and chop up vegetables and you know make those fully balanced nutritional meals. Well, I say for those people, thank God they have that food because it's keeping them alive. The bottom line is we need nourishment, we need energy. So that's one population. The other population, well, there's actually three populations we can talk about. The other population who has the resources, but they aren't intuitive eaters. And so they go out and buy those foods and think they're being bad, you know, the processed, the the refined, whatever you're talking about, and that they really shouldn't have it because they've got a bit of orthorexia and they've got a bit of, you know, good and bad food going on, a lot of good and bad food. And so they start with a box of some highly refined something and they finish it to the last bite and say, see, they've been manufactured that way to get me to finish every bite. The truth is, they're not really tuning in. They're not really giving themselves full freedom to eat whatever they want. Because truly, if you can eat those that box of whatever every single day, you don't want the whole box, it starts taking tasting, especially if you're looking at satisfaction, starts tasting bad mm-hmm. after a while, The first few bites might be exciting. And then you're going to crave the apple, as I said, so I don't buy into that. I think that that is, I think, also established by diet culture. I think it's part, you know, this whole wellness concept. Mm-hmm. Christy Harrison, one of my friends and colleagues who wrote uh, Anti-Diet, has got a new book coming out soon, I think next year, uh, mm-hmm. about the wellness industry and how it's cover for diet culture, right? And so I think that that's diet culture promoting don't eat those foods. If you eat those foods, you're going to be too much, you're going to eat too much, you're going to get fat. And that's not a good thing. And that's not healthy, which is just, I don't know. I shouldn't say the bad word, but it's BS. <laughs> What was the third population that you had in mind? The third population are the intuitive eaters, you know, (laughs) that I was referring to. You know, anybody, I'll go. I love to, you know, find some new, interesting, snacky things. I've just found the best peanut butter filled pretzels on Amazon. (laughs) Sorry to say Those are so good. They're so delicious. And for me, yeah, I have a handful of them. They're delicious. And I can have them anytime I want. I can order more of them because I have privilege. I have the privilege to be able to buy what I want and I have no good or bad foods. Mm-hmm. So I've got gummy candies that I love and you know, after two or three of them, it's, ugh, it's enough. Mm-hmm. So that intuitive eaters can have any kind of manufactured food that you're talking about and not kind of fly away with it and that's all they're eating.
0: So what about, and this is also, I'm bringing out from questions that I've had too many times. Let's just say we're having chicken for dinner. We're ordering out. And so there's the grilled chicken with like nothing on it. And there's the chicken with all the sauces with all the people who have this argument are going to say all oh, the sugar in it. And it's a lot easier to eat a lot more of the chicken with the sauce than it is for the chicken without anything. Is that based in anything or, you know what, let me even leave it open-ended. What would you say to those people?
1: Well, first of all, let's look at the individual taste preferences. I I'm teased about being liking plain food. I like the taste of chicken. I like the taste of fish and steak and all that. I'm not a sauce person unless it's Italian or it's Mexican. That's another <laughs> story. But most of the time, I'm, I don't like French cooking. That never appealed to me when I've been in Paris that the food is not exciting to me because my taste buds are my taste buds. So uh, what you're mentioning though, sometimes just dry chicken, it's hard to swallow because it's so, you know, overcooked and it's dried out and the sauce may moisten it. Learn how to cook chicken so it's not so dried out. (laughs) (laughs) I love that answer. Don't choke on it. So, but I think it it just leads to what, you know, my response typically Mm -hmm. is everyone is individual. Everyone has different tastes and taste buds that they like. I'm probably going to say something that's going to turn off. So many of your people, I don't like sushi. I mean, I didn't grow up. I did not grow up with sushi. Sushi didn't come around until my probably mid thirties and it just turned me off. I, I don't know. It was an emotional reaction, the idea of raw fish. So that's me. Everybody else I know, especially here in LA, oh my God, it's the best thing in the whole world. They can't wait to get to the sushi restaurant. So everybody's an individual. Nobody has the same.
0: Yeah. But I think also what you're saying is that just because some multimillion dollar diet culture company has funded some research and said all this stuff doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And sometimes the way that I think about it, I don't know as much research as you do, but sometimes the way that I think about it is at a certain point, is it worth it? Do you want to be on such a rigid diet so that the happiness is zapped out of your life so that you can have better
1: skin? Supposedly? I love that question because I have come to a different way of talking to people that I used to. I used to be very zealous about helping them understand why things really weren't the truth and, you know, why they bought into this or that. Now what I say to people is well, okay. Whether it's true or not what you're telling me, and I don't happen to believe it, but you do, let's just look at sustainability. Mm -hmm. Can you really eliminate that for your whole life? And if you do just what you said, what's the impact? Are you just not going to be able to get the satisfaction? Are you going to be, have to isolate and not go to fun things because you don't know what's in the food? So I have found a much better response because I'm not fighting with people anymore about the right or wrong of their beliefs. I'm just asking them to look at the reality their lived experience in trying to pick that up and what are the pros and cons of that for them pros they, they think they're doing the right thing and cons is they feel terrible about themselves when they can't sustain it so which actually you have we I, I just hinted at this early in our talk but uh, this is really based on autonomy I was talking about how de- deprivation is one of the major psychological principles behind why diets don't work or any kind of deprivation doesn't work to me, the underlying foundation of intuitive eating is our quest for autonomy as healthy psychologically healthy individuals. And this is something that has been looked at in many psychological models, especially, I love Eric Erickson's model, which was called the eight uh, stages of man, which should be human, but this is a long time ago. And his premise was that each individual goes through these eight psychosocial stages that have to be conquered. There's a challenge at each stage. And when that's conquered, if they can go on to the next and then ultimately have a healthy ego and a healthy personality as adults. The second stage is called autonomy versus shame and doubt. And this starts when kids are about 18 months old, from 18 months to three years old, when they start to realize, oh, they're not tied to their mom's with by the umbilical cord. They're actually their own little person. They can walk out of the room, walk in, and they want to do it their way. And their favorite word is no. And this is a wonderful time to honor autonomy in kids and give them the ability to make choices in terms of their food and their clothes and their toys and whatever they're doing. Obviously, they have to be protected from running into the middle of the street. But so why is autonomy the basis of intuitive eating? Because it's about honoring each person's autonomous wisdom. Everyone has that very private place inside that knows when they're hungry, when they're full, what tastes They like what they don't like. And these diets really cross the boundary of that private space inside. And ultimately, the healthy ego is going to say, I can't, I'm not doing this anymore. And they break the diet. However, they feel bad about themselves because they're not following it. And, and people who come to me and tell me, you know, I'm, I'm a failure at diets. So I say, no, nope, you're, a, you're a success at ego development, because that shows that you have this autonomous piece of you that is just not going to buy into this cult of diet culture. But it makes you feel bad mm-hmm. about yourself or the, you say, the billions of dollars of diet culture to get you on the next diet.
0: I love that. This is not entirely related, but we speak about kids just for a second, especially you know, developing autonomy, that they are kids and reliant on their parents. How do you suggest, and I know that you have a new extension to intuitive eating about baby led weaning and raising intuitive eaters, and obviously we don't have time to talk about the intricacies of it, but sort of in a nutshell, what would you say are the keys to raising intuitive eaters?
1: Well, it's honoring the autonomy of the child, as I'm saying. And so how does that start? You know, at about six months old, you can start feeding a child solid foods, or we're instructed that you can. Often you're told it's got to be some mush something, you know, just when my son was a baby at two months old, his doctor told me I could give him rice if I, and so I cooked it and I ground it. First I ground the grains, then I cooked it. And then I stuck it in his mouth. And he just spit it right out because he he wasn't ready to eat. But typically at around six months, you sit the child in a high chair, where most children, if they have the ability, can sit up in a high chair, can sit at the dining room table. The family is served a meal with lots of components. The baby on their tray gets little tiny pieces of what they're not going to choke on. I mean, you're not going to give a baby a whole steak, but you know, little pieces of whatever is in the meal. And actually, a baby doesn't really need any nourishment from food until they're about a year old. Milk is their full nourishment that first year. So that experience is called baby led weaning, or it really should be baby led solid foods. That six month period is where they get to play with the food, mush it in their hands, stick it in their mouths, take it out of their mouths, and they learn they learn how to eat that way rather than a spoon of you know pureed food and not that there's nothing wrong with that sometimes kids need that but they don't get used to the whole idea that somebody else is telling them what to eat when to eat sticking a spoon in their mouths they get the opportunity to to learn about food as a joyous thing and they and the parents are role models so the more the parents can or the family whoever the family is can have a variety of foods and the child can watch them i mean you know it's like they want a little apes, you know they just want to do what the parents are doing what the parents are doing so that's uh, i did write about that in uh, the fourth edition and there is a house talking about Christie's new book coming out. There's a phenomenal book coming out in January. It's called how to raise an intuitive eater. I fortunately didn't have to write it. I worked on five books in six years. And so I'm a little burned out at the moment, but I did write the foreword for this book. And they're two of my colleagues that I admire and adore. And I consulted with them through the entire writing of the book. And so they actually outline for anybody who's got little kids, how to raise an intuitive eater, which if it starts there, then the likelihood of a eating disorder is diminished, you know, a eating disorder developing.
0: So a really important book for any parent to read. Yes. Yeah. Just in the interest of time, I wanted to ask you one more thing, just because I love this section on your website. And obviously we can talk all day. I certainly can. But just to kind of pivot, you have this section called Words of Wisdom, and some of them are so, so beautiful. And I was wondering if you can leave us with a little bit of inspiration.
1: Oh, sure. I I put it on there not to be arrogant or egocentric, but to say, these are things I've learned throughout my life. I'm pretty old now. And Grateful, <laughs> grateful, and some of the things that I put on there have really helped me get through life. And when I was thinking about this, and there's so many, as you said, that I love. Um, a quick one. Uh, for the most part, they're my four favorite words. It helps you get away from all or nothing. For the most part, you're going to eat when you're you know hungry and enjoy the food. Well, in any case, I could go on with that. But but the, my favorite one came to me when I was seven years old. So my mother was pretty overwhelmed with life. Uh, she was having a difficult Difficulty just managing life, and it was she wasn't working. She outside of the home. She was working in the home with me and my brother. I was seven. He was three, and my brother was a handful, <laughs> a real handful, still is. in any case, one day I just had this like moment uh, where I said, "Mommy, just do one thing." Just do one little thing. And when you get done doing that, if you feel like doing another thing, you can do another thing. And it calmed her. And I have to tell you, Rachel, that to this day, when, and I have so many things I have to do every day of my professional life, when I get overwhelmed, I just go back to my seven year old and I say, just do one thing, you know, answer that one email or file that one paper. And it reduces my anxiety. And I get calm because you don't have to do it all. You just do one thing. And then if you've got the energy, did you do the next thing. So I would say that's my favorite one. What a wise seven-year-old. Yeah, God knows. Well, I also um, was put on the bus at the sou- on the south side of Chicago every Saturday morning by myself to go to the Art Institute to take an art class that my mother had enrolled me in wow. every Saturday morning. At seven years old by myself. Today it would be child abuse, but um, <laughs> so yeah I think I was a pretty grown up seven year old. But even taking that concept as, let's say,
0: somebody who is embarking on their recovery journey here from an eating disorder... Sure, there is a lot to cover. There's healing your relationship with food, any sort of physical something, emotional. All you have to do is today do one thing, and if you feel like it, you can do the next thing.
1: Yeah, get through to, yeah, get through today. Feed yourself enough today. Don't worry about if it's the perfect amount, don't worry about if it's the perfect food. Don't worry, there's no such thing as perfect. Feed yourself enough today, and the more nourished you are, the more you're going to be able to do some of the other things.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners appreciate it. Before I let you go,
1: where can our listeners find you? So, I have this personal website that you mentioned, which is eliseresh.com. There's also the intuitiveeating.org website that's more formal. It has some of the studies listed or a lot of them listed, and it has a place on where you can train to become a certified intuitive eating counselor. And But my website has, you know, all these. I have a list of books I recommend. I have to update that list, I've noticed. In any case, I'm on Instagram barely. It's at eliseresh. And I, when I say barely, is I don't really know how to make an Instagram post other than take a picture of something and post it, or <laughs> repost somebody's story. So that's what I do on Instagram. I also am on Facebook, never go there, and I'm on Twitter and occasionally tweet something. So, But Instagram will have some wonderful things that other people have <laughs> posted, and I like to endorse by reposting them. So that's where you find me.
0: Yes, and you can definitely buy the book. Yeah,
1: and the books. And if anybody, I don't know that I should say this, but if anybody wants to email me, policedress gmail.com. I shouldn't put
0: that. In. There you have it, everybody. It's out. <laughs> that's,
1: that's findable anyway. <laughs> I didn't say it.
0: Yes. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. If you enjoyed today's episode and you know someone who may as well, please share it. Not only does it help us reach more people, it really makes my day to know that this show is making a difference. All right. Talk next time.